Influencer, the new science of leading change, featuring David Maxfield. Hey, Engagers, this is Jesse Leahy. I have one free hardcover copy of the book Influencer, which we'll be discussing today with author David Maxfield. I'll send it to the first person who sends an email to jesse at engagingleader.com with your request and your mailing address. inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. All successful leaders have to be good at leading progress. And science has found that successful leaders from CEOs to parents, have a common set of principles and skills that help create quick, profound, and lasting change in people and organizations. In fact, there's three things that influencers do better than other average leaders. Here to talk to us today about those three keys to influence is David Maxfield, New York Times bestselling author, keynote speaker, and social scientist for organizational change. We talked to David in our last episode about bridging the workplace generation gap, focusing on his book, Crucial Accountability. And now I'm excited to welcome David back to Engaging Leader to talk about his book, Influencer, The New Science of Leading Change. David Maxfield, welcome back to The Engaging Leader. Thanks, Jesse. David, in this book, before we jump into the six-part model, there's this concept that you call vital behaviors or high leverage behaviors. Can you explain that to us? Sure. One of the problems that we see in organizations is that they they spread themselves too thin. When they're when they're trying to change an aspect of their culture, they they'll pick 10 or 15 different behaviors that they try to change and it becomes kind of a laundry list of competencies rather than a high leveraged focused kind of initiative. So This vital behaviors is our way of essentially implementing the old Pareto principle or the old 80-20 rule Mm -hmm. that what we find across organizations, across societies, within individuals even, is that 20% of the behaviors lead to 80% of the change. So you should really focus like a laser beam on the two or three or three or four behaviors that drive the lion's share of the change you're after. Now, that makes great sense logically because most of us are familiar with the 80-20 rule. But you basically say so that what you really want to do is boil it down to one or two behaviors. And doesn't that seem risky? What if you pick the wrong one or two behaviors? Yeah, if you pick the wrong one or two behaviors, you learn it pretty soon. (laughs) So as you're doing this, you're always watching. You keep your eye on the results as well as on the behaviors. And so as if the behaviors improve and the results don't improve, you know you've got the wrong behaviors. Here's an example from when I was uh, doing my doctoral work at Stanford. My advisor, Al Bandura, had another student who was working with alcoholics. And uh, he had noticed that a lot of these alcoholics were under a lot of stress and tension in their home lives and their work lives. No surprise, right? Right. And so he thought, you know, maybe if he could teach them relaxation techniques that could remove their stress, you know, stress reduction techniques, that maybe that would decrease their drinking behavior. 
And what he found was, yes, you could teach relaxation skills to these alcoholics. And yes, they were very acceptable. They would learn them. They'd become quite adept at them. But no, it had no impact on their drinking at all. <laughs> Instead, what you had were a bunch of really relaxed alcoholics. <laughs> so yeah, you can pick the wrong ones. So how do you identify the, the right behaviors to focus on? And especially what if, they, what if they're not obvious? Yeah, sometimes they are obvious, which is fun. Um, we have four strategies that we employ. Now, these four aren't exhaustive, but these four capture um, pretty much most of the vital behaviors we end up using. The first is, I'll call them no-brainers. And they really are kind of obvious, but very difficult. So here would be an example. Back when I was in graduate school, I was working at the Stanford Heart Disease Prevention Clinic at the Stanford Hospital as a project. And we were studying people living in San Jose, California. And we were trying to separate and discover the behavioral differences between healthy people and less healthy people. Now, this was in the late 1970s. It was long ago. And my guess is you're not close to San Jose, but let me guess the behaviors haven't changed much at all. In fact, it's three behaviors. <laughs> healthy people watch their weight. They exercise every day. So they eat healthily and they exercise every day. And one thing they don't do is they don't smoke. Okay, so those are the vital behaviors. We all know it, duh, mm -hmm. right? But we don't always practice them. Right? In fact, I like to ask people, how many of you know more about living a healthy lifestyle than you actually practice? <laughs> and I think that's all of us, right? So knowing the vital behaviors is the first step. It's essential, but it's not sufficient. We still have the influence problem to face. Now, a second approach to finding vital behaviors is to look for crucial moments. So an example would be, uh, we're working on offshore oil rigs. Right? And we're, we're, we're working on workplace safety, trying to prevent deaths and injuries on these offshore oil rigs. And what we found was that about 95% of the people followed about 95% of the best safety practices about 95% of the time. Now, that's why people weren't dying every day. <laughs> but there were a few crucial moments when people seemed to throw these safety guidelines out the window. And these crucial moments were when a rig was down or behind schedule, or when a big storm was approaching and they knew they had to evacuate the rig. Under those conditions, they kind of, a certain percentage of them, not everybody, but a few people threw safety out the window and just did whatever it took. And that's when people got hurt. So we could focus in on those crucial moments and find the behaviors that would turn that around. All right, so that would be an example of using crucial moments to find vital behaviors. And there are a couple other ways if you'd like me to add those. Sure, go ahead. Okay. Well, one is, what, is what's called in the literature positive deviance. <laughs> so I like to ask people, <laughs> how many of you consider yourself deviants, right? <laughs> so a, a positive deviant is someone who, by all rights, ought to have a problem, but for some reason isn't. And here's an example. When the Carter Center, Jimmy Carter's Center down in Atlanta, was working to try to eliminate guinea worm. Guinea worm is, is transmitted by drinking polluted water, water that has guinea worm larvae in it. Well, when they were studying this in the country of Burkina Faso, they found that there were three villages that were getting water from the very same polluted water source, but in one of the villages, nobody was getting guinea worm. Like, how could this be? Mm -hmm. So they went in and they observed the villagers in the, in the villages where they had guinea worm and in the villages 
the positive deviant village where they were not getting guinea worm. And here's what they learned. When the women and children who collected the water got back to the village with their water, before they poured the water into the community cistern, the women would put a skirt across the cistern and pour the water through their skirt. So they'd filter the water through their skirt. And that was enough to filter out the guinea worm. It's kind of amazing. So the Carter Center approached DuPont and got filtration material that could withstand the tropics that worked a lot better than your skirt <laughs> and provided it throughout all of sub-Saharan Africa. It was amazing. They have virtually eliminated guinea worm from the face of the earth. Wow, that is amazing. The, the final one that I'll give an example of, we call them culture busters. It's where you know what it is people need to do, but what you're asking them to do, the vital behavior, is so countercultural that it won't happen if you don't add something to it. And here'd be an example. We're trying to improve hand hygiene in hospitals because in, in this country, in the U.S., 100,000 people die every year from hospital-acquired infections, and the number one cause is people not washing their hands often enough. You're supposed to wash your hands every time you go into a patient care area and every time you leave, and that's a bare minimum. So the key to getting good hand hygiene is having people remind each other because people get busy and they forget. So we would call it 200% accountability, that you're 100% accountable for your own hand hygiene, but you're also 100% accountable for everybody else's hand hygiene. And the example we'd give is if you're a housekeeper and you're in a patient's room and you're cleaning the windows, so you're facing the window, you're cleaning the window, and a physician walks in and you don't notice whether that physician has washed her hands, you need to speak up and remind her, right? And that is so countercultural. I mean, housekeepers don't typically remind physicians of anything. <laughs> in fact, even nurses sometimes find it difficult. And because it's so countercultural, we had to make it a vital behavior and say, it's, you, you are 100% responsible for reminding that physician. Then we added a third vital behavior for the physician saying, when someone does remind you, even if you've just washed your hands but they didn't notice, you smile, you say thanks, you make it safe for them to have done that, and you wash your hands again because washing your hands does no harm. So those are the four strategies. Some are no-brainers. Some are keyed into crucial moments. Some we discover through positive deviance. And the fourth category are these culture busters that we need to put in place because they're so countercultural. So that's all about finding vital behaviors. And in the book, you say that finding vital behaviors is one of the three keys to influence, that when scientists have studied what uh, who are, are actually effective at being change agents? Who are the true influencers? There's three things they have in common, and that is one of them. Another is this idea of focusing and measuring. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's the old adage is if, if, you, don't, if you don't track it, you can't control it. If you, don't, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And that's just painfully true. <laughs> and, and the other painful truth is we often measure the wrong thing. So, for example, imagine that you, you set up a, you evaluate your marketing campaign by measuring how many impressions get printed rather than what kind of sales results they produce. Or imagine you measure your foreign aid by measuring how much foreign aid you give out rather than measuring the impact that foreign aid has in the countries where it's received. We find this often. So, for example, we were working with a, 
an anti-poverty agency down in South America. And they were using microcredit as their strategy, so microloans to, to impoverished people. And the way they were measuring their success was the volume of loans they had outstanding and the repayment rate on these loans. And we asked them, well, what impact are you having on your key index, which is poverty? And they said, well, we aren't measuring that. We said, well, how would you measure it? They said, well, in their community, the poverty line was $5 a day. Anyone earning less than $5 a day was considered poor. We said, okay, so what's the area you serve? And they, they put a geographic circle around the population they served and said, okay, here's the percentage people who are poor. What could we do to change that? Right? And it changed a lot of how they did business. They had to do more than just micro-lending. But, but within two years, they cut the number, the percentage of poor people living in their community by half. Wow. I mean, just focusing on the right number can have a huge impact. We saw a similar. We were working with a large gold and copper mining multinational company where they were trying to improve worker safety. And what they found was that they had, not, in, not totally intentionally, but, but they had over time located the most dangerous jobs and outsourced them to vendors. Mm. And that had made their, their stats look good, but they were artificial. People were still getting hurt. So they, what they did was very similar to this anti-poverty group. They drew a circle around each one of their minds, and they said, we are responsible for the injuries that happen inside this circle. We don't care if it's our employees who are getting injured or whether it's our contractors getting injured or whether it's villagers. This was in Ghana and Indonesia who are getting injured by our vehicles. Every one of those injuries counts against us. And once they did that, it changed the, how they approached worker safety and safety in general and really saved lives. Hmm. It's interesting that a lot of leaders in their head, they kind of know what their goal is and, and they maybe have 10 or 15 different ways they're going to measure it. But they don't do a good job of clearly articulating a goal to the people that, that they need to influence, that they need to engage in this change effort. Yeah, that's certainly true. The goals, you, they really need to convince people that, that, that they and that the others who are respected in the organization have a, a real focus, that it's true priority, and they have to um, educate and convince people that it's, um, that, it's a, that it's valid and that it's a reliable measure, that it's really a truthful measure, that it's not, can't be manipulated, that it's not somehow crooked. And this involves a lot of dialogue with the organization. We'll often help leaders have that kind of dialogue. One example from the book that I appreciated a lot was uh, uh, Dr. Don Berwick, the former CEO of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. And he announced a very audacious goal in, in 2004. Can you uh, share that story with us? Yes, Don Berwick is certainly one of my heroes, um, and I should be everyone's heroes. He's, he started with a 100,000 lives campaign. So he, he put a stake in the ground and said, I believe that in the next 18 months, if we can get enough hospitals, enough healthcare workers on board, that we can save 100,000 lives in 18 months. Now, he used kind of a political slogan that some is not a number. And soon is not a time. <laughs> hmm. So he 
have to be very specific as to here's a target so that it, what it does is it, it, it garners support for, for a campaign. As soon as you know that this thing has a beginning, a middle, and an end, you know you can put out that extra effort for that sprint for that period of time. And once you've accomplished that sprint, oftentimes you've changed norms, you've built skills, you've built capabilities to where you can have an even more audacious challenge. So now the IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, is working on their 5 million lives campaign, and it's a global campaign. Wow. And they're incredibly successful. And yet he could have just done what most leaders do, not the non-influencers, I guess, and said something more fuzzy and vague, like, we will reduce preventable harm in hospitals. Yes, I'm afraid often we do that. And it's a, it kind of lets us off the hook because anything we do, it can be labeled a success, I guess. <laughs> but it's not <laughs> how you drive change. <laughs> so the three keys to influence, we talked about finding vital behaviors. We talked about focusing and measuring. And the third is engaging all six sources of influence, which at first... It struck me as a bit overwhelming, but it, it really comes down to two groups of three, doesn't it? It does. So any good, smart person should be a skeptic when you, they hear about six sources of influence. They should <laughs> ask themselves, why six and why these six? So let me give a, a two-minute overview. Um, when you're asking somebody to do something new or different, they should ask themselves two questions. Can I do it? And will it be worth it? So can I do it is the ability question. And will it be worth it? That's the motivation question. So that's the backbone of the model. So think of it as two columns. Then the ribs of the model are the sources of our motivation and ability. It's personal, social, and structural. So those are the three rows. So personal motivation and ability, or personal motivation, sounds like, do I enjoy it? Is it meaningful? Is it part of a moral purpose? Is it part of my identity? It's the kind of stuff that psychologists have studied for 100 years. Personal ability is like knowledge, skill, strength, experience. Again, it's what psychologists study. Now, the mistake we tend to make is to assume that if we have enough personal motivation and ability, problem solved. <laughs> Instead, I tend to go with uh, Warren Buffett, the billionaire investor. One of the quotes he has, which I love, is that if you take a leader with an excellent reputation and place him in an industry with a less than excellent reputation, it's the industry that will maintain its reputation. <laughs> kind of a cynic himself, right? So what he's saying is you can have great motivation and ability, but if you land in a social environment where your boss doesn't want you to do it that way, or in a structural environment where you can't get promoted for doing it that way, you're the one who's likely to change. So we want to look at the social part of motivation and ability. It's the kind of thing that marketers study, that anthropologists and sociologists study, and also at the structural motivators and enablers. It's the kind of thing that people in business, like organizational behavior or organization development study. So we want to draw from all of these different disciplines to make sure we can create an overwhelming strategy that will be successful against the odds. And you call that over-determining success. Why, why that term? Yeah. We'll say that when you, when you um, let me describe what I mean, I guess, by over-determine. Uh, I'll use an anecdote. I was working with the Anderson Cancer Center down in Houston, 
and I was at lunch, and I was sitting with a woman, and she, I asked her what she did at the Anderson Cancer Research Clinic, and she said, well, two things. She said she was a nurse and a mathematician. I said, really? I've never met a nurse who was a mathematician, or vice versa. <laughs> and she said, well, yeah, she studied um, arithmetic patterns in the human body. I said, really? Could you give me an example? And she said, yeah, your heartbeat. I said, oh, okay. I said, well, what's interesting about my heartbeat? And she said, well, what's interesting is it's overdetermined. I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, there are several different things that keep your heart beating. In fact, there are about eight. And any one of those could go haywire and your heart would continue to beat. Now, it might change its rhythm. It might change in some ways you wouldn't like, but it'll keep right on beating because it's overdetermined. Now, when it's your heartbeat, it's a good thing to have it overdetermined. <laughs> right. But oftentimes, <laughs> in organizations, we're facing problems, and these problems have more than a single root cause. So these problems are, in a sense, overdetermined. And we may address one cause to the problem. We might think problem solved, but in fact, it's not. It may change it a little, but it comes right back. So if you want to solve a stubborn, a persistent, resistant problem, you often need to apply multiple solutions simultaneously. That's overdetermined. In fact, let me give another example. I think a lot of times when we're facing an organization problem, it's as if we've, we're driving an SUV on the beach and we've gotten stuck in deep sand. Now, that's the bad news. The good news is, let's say there's a football team practicing on the beach and they're willing to come help us push our, our truck or our vehicle. So the way we do it is we go, we find the biggest, brawniest, strongest looking football player, and we ask them to push our SUV. And that person comes and pushes as hard as they can for half an hour till they collapse from exhaustion. And then we find the next biggest and ask them to come push. And at the end of the day, we've exhausted every single one of the football players <laughs> and proven to ourselves that football players can't push an SUV. <laughs> I think we do that in organizations all the time. The solution is to combine solutions together all at once, all these influences, and overwhelm the problem. It's how we get out of the beach sand. Now, in your book, you have a nice chapter on each of these six that does a great job of breaking down what they mean and providing some research-based evidence as far as tips for how to make that happen. But I wonder if you have a story or a case study that can help us understand, just give us a kind of general understanding of each of those six and an example of, of a solution that helped influence it from that perspective. Absolutely. Let me give some, just some quick examples. So personal motivation, for example. It's, I was working with um, drivers of light vehicles in Ghana, in Africa. They were, there are 800 of them, and they drive for this gold mine, it's a big gold mine, brings out a couple billion dollars in gold every year. And the problem was this gold mine was built in a part of Africa, a part of Ghana that never had roads until the gold mine was built. Now, all of a sudden, there are like 500 miles of roads and people are getting injured on these roads by these vehicles driving around. And the, the, the task is how do, we, how do we bring the injuries and deaths down to zero? And it turns out that personal motivation of a lot of these drivers is that they want to go fast. They enjoy driving fast. Their patron saint is Mario Andretti. <laughs> they believe that driving fast is a, shows people how skilled they are at driving. So we need to deal with that personal motivation. And one of the ways we dealt with it was by having their children 
draw crayon pictures asking them to be safe. So it would show pictures of, and they'd put them in the cab. Another way was to have them go visit people who had been injured um, by, in motor vehicle accidents caused by mining vehicles and, and do a service day trying to help that person. So it might be like a 12-year-old girl who had a broken leg because she was hit by a truck and go to that family and, and try to mend that family's situation, you know, do work around their house, um, do a fundraiser for the daughter, that sort of thing. And what we find is as you involve people in a face-to-face, in a community kind of action like that, their personal motivation changes. And in the moment when they're tempted to speed and they see that picture drawn by their daughter or their son, it changes their motivation in that moment. So that'd be an example of personal motivation. Mm-hmm. Just to throw a little bit of a wrench in there, if you have a situation that's not feasible or practical to get a large group, let's say, involved in a direct experience, um, how, how can you bring some of those same attributes to bear? We'll say there are three sort of strategies that we employ. Direct experience, as you're describing, that's the best The least effective is verbal persuasion, so that's lectures, sermons, data dumps, and rants. The intermediate, sort of the tweener strategy, is vicarious experience. So you could think of it as a movie, as a story, as a... Let me give an example. Uh, We were working with nurses. We were trying to get them to be able to speak up to physicians who might or might not have washed their hands. And on average, we found, we set up a simulation and we found that about 11 to 12% of nurses would speak up to a physician to remind him or her to wash their hands. And that's not where we wanted to be 100%. It was about 11%. But we found there was a group of nurses that were 50% likely to speak up. This was without any training. Hmm. What made these nurses unique was that either they, a family member, or a close friend had had a hospital-acquired infection. Now, if they themselves had had the hospital-acquired infection, that's direct experience. But if it was a friend or a family member, that's vicarious experience. So we found we could build off that vicarious experience by having these nurses share the stories of their loved ones with other nurses on the unit. And a well-crafted story, just explaining what happened, how it changed their lives, how it resulted maybe in permanent injuries, that made it powerfully motivating to the other people on the unit. So a well-told story or videotaped example, or a speaker who's been injured who can come in and talk. These are all ways that can be powerful. Excellent. Okay, so you're about to tell us about the next. Yeah, so personal ability. And let me use, I'll use a healthcare example from personal ability. We were trying to reduce patient falls. Having a patient fall in a hospital is one of the most predictive things of the patient's death, right? It's very injurious to a patient to fall. And one of the best ways of vital behavior to prevent falls is to do what's called a quick check. And a quick check is a quick check (laughs) to see whether the person has the strength, the, the, the stability to stand, to go vertical without having a gait belt attached. The challenge is that most nurses don't do it. And when we asked them why they don't do it, they said because even though it's called a quick check, it took too long. It would take two minutes to do. And if you think of the situation as being a a patient who's rung the call button because they need to go to the bathroom and has taken the staff a half hour to get there, and now the patient's desperate to go to the bathroom, the patient's not going to put up for a two-minute quick check. 
So we looked for positive deviants, for people who already did the quick check. And we found them as nurses who worked in orthopedic surgery units. They did the quick checks. And not only did they do them, they did them in less than 45 seconds. And they did them better than the nurses who were taking two minutes. So we decided it was a personal ability issue. So we organized quick check rodeos where these orthopedic nurses would go to other med surge units and in about a 20-minute period teach and drill and use deliberate practice to get these other nurses so they could bring their quick checks down to below 45 seconds and at a higher quality as the orthopedic nurses did. And once they could do them in just 45 seconds, they were far more willing to do them and a lot more compliance was, was achieved. So, so that's using personal ability. And generally, you're not talking about just a training session that is imparting knowledge. You're talking about helping people actually develop and practice specific skills. Yeah, that's right. I guess my, my favorite example of that was I was working in the auto industry. This was back in like the 70s. And this crusty old manufacturing manager said, the problem we have here is way too much education and not enough training. I said, hmm, <laughs> what's the difference? What's the difference between education and training? He said, well, think of you got two courses. One's called sex education. The other's called sex training. <laughs> <laughs> okay. He said, yeah. So, so what we're talking about here is deliberate practice. Practice with feedback so you can hone your skills and get ever better, better, better at the skill. Oftentimes, it's very quick. It could be done in 20 minutes where you practice four or five times, get feedback from a coach each time, and, and change it and get better. And you can improve dramatically and reduce the time and improve the quality with just deliberate practice. Okay, so that is both sides of the personal level. We've got the personal motivation and personal ability. What's next? I'll, I'll describe sources three, four, five, and six using the gold mine example of these drivers in Ghana. Mm -hmm. So let me start with source six, so structural ability. One of the things they did to improve the driving was structural. They put a GPS in every vehicle and a software program that would measure whether the driver was speeding, was going over the speed limit, how fast the driver took turns, how fast the driver accelerated, and how fast the driver braked, and calculated a risky driving score every day. So every driver had a risky driving score every day. That kind of source six, structural ability, that information changed driving behavior immediately. Hmm. Now to add to that, they use sources three and four, social motivation and social ability. They created teams of five drivers, and at the end of every day, the drivers would look at each other's risky driving scores, and whoever had the worst score, that became the team score. <laughs> See what that does? Creates that peer pressure. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the week, teams that got above a certain level on the driving scores all got swag. Right? They'd get a t-shirt, they'd get a hat, they'd get stuff that they'd usually give to their friends and family. And they liked that stuff. So that's using uh, source five, structural motivation. Right Now, in addition, if a driving team got kind of frustrated with a driver who, whose score was always poor, they could, at their, on their own, they could send the driver back to a day working on a simulator instead of actually driving. Mm. So they had 
power to sanction each other. Putting those things together along with personal motivation and personal ability changed driving behavior dramatically and saved as many as six lives a year just in Ghana. Wow. Well, David, we have barely scratched the surface of all the great content in this book. Where can people get a hold of this book and also find out more about you and your work? Well, I encourage them to get the book and read it. You can find it either at a library or at your favorite online or local bookstore. It's called Influencer. You can also find it at Influencer.com. You can find information. Or our company's called Vital Smart. So you can go to VitalSmarts.com and get tons of information. And just out of curiosity, can you tell us a little more about Vital Smarts, what, what the overall purpose of the business is? Sure. We're a research-based training and consulting firm. We help organizations that have people-related issues. So if you think about, you know, we're trying to change and improve and become a more vital organization, it almost always comes down to humans, their behaviors, their commitment. How do you deal with with that. And, and we have made organizations for the last 30 years, we've been making organizations measurably more vital, more profitable, more successful by helping them improve the performance of the individuals who work there. Well, the book is Influencer, The New Science of Leading Change. David Maxfield, thank you again for joining us on Engaging Leader. Thank you so much, Jesse. All right, Engagers, let me just do a quick recap for you. First of all, the three keys to influence. Influencers do three things better than others. They are clearer about the results they want to achieve and how they will measure them. They focus on a small number of vital behaviors that will help them achieve those results. That's usually one or two behaviors. And they overdetermine change by using six sources of influence, not just one or two, six sources of influence that both motivate and enable the vital behaviors. And those six sources of influence can be organized into two groups of three, three about motivation and three about ability. The personal motivation is about making the undesirable desirable. The personal ability is about surpassing your limits, helping people surpass their limits. The social motivation is about harnessing peer pressure and social ability is about finding strength in numbers. Structural motivation is designing rewards and demanding accountability, and then structural ability is about changing the environment. Once again, let me remind you that I have one free copy, hardcover copy of the book, Influencer, The New Science of Leading Change. I will send it to the first person who sends me an email at jesse at engagingleader.com and requests that copy. And let me just say to conclude with, I was very pleasantly surprised by this book. I was skeptical. I thought the the title sounded intriguing, but was probably over-promising. In addition to David Maxfield, the book has four co-authors. And I always get suspicious of a book that has multiple authors because I think it's probably going to be a boring book that is uh, feels impersonal and is just a veiled marketing promotional attempt. But this book, I was pleasantly surprised to find is the real deal. When you read this book, it is a, it's a page turner. It's full of great stories and compelling evidence. And you will be convinced, I predict, that these, these three keys and these six sources of influence are in fact the reality. They are truly based on the latest research and they're worth paying attention to. So send me an email to request your copy. And if you are the first one, I will send you this free copy hardcover of Influencer, The New Science of Leading Change. 
And we'll provide the information and links that David Maxfield mentioned in our show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website at engagingleader.com. And while you're on the show notes page, you can engage with us by providing your thoughts or questions in the comment section or by clicking the red send voicemail button. You can also engage with us at facebook.com forward slash engaging leader or on Twitter where I am at Jesse Leahy. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with midsize and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, Rick Terrence, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of each opportunity to engage the people we care about. 